for nearly two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor Program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to another edition of the Your Financial Editor Program right here on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And, of course, as a podcast uh, on iTunes. I am Chris Murray, your host. So glad to have you along today. Hope your weekend's going well. We've got a good program laid out for you. Some really interesting top stories of this past week that we'll dive into and, uh, and, and, and look at uh, kind of from some different angles like we usually do. Also joining me in just a little bit, uh, Dr. Lindsay Burke. Uh, she has a Ph.D. in education policy from George Mason University. Wrote a really good piece this week called Virtual Learning is Unnecessary and no substitute for classroom instruction. So we'll be talking to her about that. And one of the reasons that ties in, of course, to uh, the things we talk about on this program is because you've got these kids uh, from K through 12 and then, of course, in, in colleges that aren't getting uh, the type of education that uh, that they need. And um, socially, it's really having a negative impact on many of them as well as far as uh, unfortunately, uh, suicides and um, there's also some abuse at home because um, they're not out of the home as much as they would be as if they were in school. Uh, so anyway, we're going to get uh, Dr. Burke to break all this down for us and let us know what is going on right now with the uh, the education system and how it could be better so that when these kids do get what they want and what they need, they contribute the most for themselves and for America, and that is good for our economy and our markets, etc. So that's coming up in just a little bit. Well, how much does it cost to be president? That's one thing I saw this week and I almost fell off my chair. President Trump's net worth uh, has been hovering around $2.5 billion since last year, according to Forbes. Um, what was it before he announced his candidacy in 2015? $4.5 billion. Two billion dollars he lost uh, by being the president. Uh, he was uh, number 121 on Forbes list of wealthiest Americans when he began his presidential campaign in 2016. Um, but, you know, a lot of entities cut ties with the uh, uh, Trump organization. And um, oh, the other thing, of course, is he made four hundred thousand dollars per year as president of the United States and he donated all of that salary each quarter when he received it. Uh, just unbelievable. Um, you know, this is, and it's not just him. It was his entire family has really taken it as far as uh, a hit financially. Uh, you know, of course, his daughter, Ivanka, had her clothing line and some other things. I mean, just across the board, they really sacrificed not only, you know, as a family, but financially, too. And that, my friend, is what I call true love of country. Um, not just serving, but to that extent and to that detriment, really. You know, he made his money as a businessman and then um, ran for the only office he ever ran for, one, and really did some tremendous things as far as, you know, when you look at what was going on with the economy, what was going on with the job markets, record numbers for um, minorities and, and others uh, in the job market. It was... Really great to see 
It was organic growth. It was the American economic engine just really humming along. And that was great until the virus made its way here. And then, you know, what you do is you contrast that to when Obama went into uh, office. He was broke. And now, you know, he owns three or four houses and he's cashing checks from Netflix and he's getting all these book deals. So um, that's what really turns a lot of people off. They look at these uh, politicians who are really in it for themselves, for both money and power, and um, not really representing uh, what's good for American citizens and good for the country overall. But, yeah, it cost uh, President Trump two, uh, $2 billion plus, you could probably say, because I, I don't know that the damage is done yet. Um, so we talked last week a little bit about the GameStop and BlackBerry and the AMC and these uh, short squeezes that were going on um, against some of the uh, bigger hedge fund managers, etc. So, of course... Um, Elizabeth Warren, uh, she hates Wall Street. She hates, I think she hates Main Street, too, um, you know, the banks. So she had to pipe in this week saying that it's a rigged game. She was telling CNN this. Um, it's a set of players who come in and manipulate the market. Uh, last week, you know, of course, as we said, that in uh, no fee, actually, investment app Robinhood pumped up stocks such as GameStop and others. After you had that big uh, social media uh, forum uh, from Reddit and, and others jumped in as well. But, um, you know, she was saying that it's a rigged game. Well, that was, I mean, I think a good example of why it wasn't rigged because you had some people that maybe they didn't know what they were doing. Maybe they did saying, OK, I'm going to buy stock in these companies that are being shorted because the other institutional guys we're betting that the companies were going to go down, not up. Um, and there was winners and losers, as there always is on both sides of um, of that trade. You know, you're going to have a buyer and you're going to have a seller. The problem was Robin Hood and some others um, saying you could only uh, sell the stocks, you couldn't buy them. That's on Robin Hood and these other apps. But as far as being a, you know, a, a rigged game. This isn't hopscotch. You know, if you're getting into the fi- uh, financial markets, you better understand what you are getting into. And, um, then, you know, then you have Warren writing to the SEC, uh, the chair there, requesting that she review the fluctuation of uh, these stock prices and, and et cetera. So, like I said, I think she hates not just, I know she hates Wall Street. I think she hates Main Street half the time. And, um, She's the one that was behind the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that was started um, during the Obama administration. Hundreds of millions in annual budgets for that new organization. You should see how it's morphed. Now, Mick Mulvaney did a pretty good job trying to tame that. But again, just more government, you know, agency interference, bureaucracy, etc. And, um, you know, she's really just all about that you know she doesn't want free and open markets she wants um the government to control them and um that's just really a shame and hopefully uh she won't get too far but she really even wasn't done there because this week she also uh was talking about a wealth tax and um the former top economic advisor to president trump larry kudlow 
I saw him in an interview and he was saying, look, if if Elizabeth Warren's proposed wealth tax gets passed, it's going to weaken the economy. It's going to kill jobs. It's going to mean higher taxes for everybody. Um, and he just said there's no question about it. This is a guy that has practical experience. So he actually worked on Wall Street and then he was in TV as an analyst and, of course, just served as a top economic advisor. And um, he's looking at it like, you know, if you do this where you're going to um, punish um, these individuals and families, it's not going to work out well. It's actually going to um, uh, hurt the economy and the jobs market. And unfortunately, even Biden has said that the tax code should be more progressive and equitable. Again, whatever that means, that's such an overused word, equitable and equity and equality. It's just thrown around with no real meaning to stick on the wall most of the time. So um, Larry Kudlow was saying they're going to double the capital gains tax, just so you know if you're selling your house, uh, increase the tax on uh, successful earners. They're going to tax energy literally to death. Um, they're trying to wreck the whole energy sector, which we'll talk more about in a minute. But, yeah, just some scary stuff when you see what's already being uh, talked about and pushed through uh, politically. It's exactly like we saw uh, with, like, Obamacare, and everybody knows what a train wreck that was. Now you're seeing it in not just healthcare, but in different uh, industries as well. I was really happy to see this week that the former Housing and Urban Development Secretary, Dr. Ben Carson, announced that he has launched a nonprofit think tank named the American Cornerstone Institute. So the institute pursues common sense solutions to America's most pressing issues while ensuring our country stands firm in support of our founding principles. So I saw the uh, the release that said the American Cornerstone Institute is dedicated to promoting and preserving individual and religious liberty helping our country's most vulnerable find new hope and developing methods to decrease the federal government's role in society and to improve efficiency to best serve all our nation's citizens. Um, you know, that's their mission statement. And uh, it said pledging to be a voice for reason and civility in a nation that is increasingly devoid of common sense. So, just great. I mean, he's a wonderful person. Uh, obviously, he was a wonderful uh, neurosurgeon. Uh, he was a great HUD secretary. He really was. I mean, he got with Secretary uh, Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, came up with these um, um, opportunity zones all across the country through the governors in each state and brought investment in to help those um, communities that were hurt, uh, forgotten about, very low income, low opportunities. Um, and I think they're up to like $80 billion that they've raised already in like the three years it was available. They were hoping for $100 billion over 10 years. That's how successful this was. And the hope, common sense hope, which is I'm glad they used that word, that uh, Dr. Carson and Secretary Mnuchin were able to bring to these areas again have to wait and see what happens if it gets undone um but really it was uh, a bright light that was uh being like presented or sh shined on those areas 
so that uh, good things could come. Um, also heard from another uh, uh, official from the Trump administration, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo this week moved that the uh, move by China, he warned that the move by China to sanction him as well as other administration officials is sending a message to the new administration, basically saying, you know, the sanctions that took place were intended to do a single thing. It was to send a message to the, the it, this new administration that says, if you're serious about protecting America, American sovereignty, um, American jobs, American wealth, you will be punished by the Chinese Communist Party. So, um, scary, you know, Secretary uh, Pompeo said we took serious, seriously 50 years of failed policy, flipped it on its head, and put a real premium on protecting Americans from the threat of the Chinese Communist Party that it's it, that it presents today to each and every one of us. So, obviously, Secretary Pompeo was extremely successful and um, is very worried, continues to be very worried about China. Uh, I think they're number one, and then you throw in, you know, Russia and Iran and some others uh, right behind them. Uh, so I was talking about how, you know, they're, uh, the new administration basically uh, wanting, as Larry Kudlow said, wanting to tax, uh, excuse me, tax the energy industry to death. Well, and we know, you know, that they're, they're already started on that. Well, um, Ilan Omar is urging Biden to shut down a pipeline project now under construction in northern Minnesota, where she's a congressperson. So it's Enbridge. They began construction, um, constructing the line three pipeline in de- just in December to replace the deteriorating pipeline that was built in the 1960s. So. She sends a, uh, a letter to Biden, uh, asking him to, uh, with, or praising him basically first for withdrawing permits for the Keystone XL pipeline, which of course literally sparked immediate job losses immediately. And, um, and she asked that he extend that scrutiny to the Enbridge line, um, line three project. So, um, she's saying that it has dis disproportionate impacts on indigenous uh, communities. So this stuff, uh, it's it's insane. Um, and she said the greater issue at stake is climate change, of course, which they won't meet and debate about. Again, that's just something they throw around, arguing that we cannot afford to build more fossil fuel infrastructure. So it's just going to drive up the cost of energy. Who does that hurt the most? Poor people, uh, people on fixed income. Um and by the way, our, you know, you, you probably already know this, but our CO2 emissions actually went down again last year. So we're doing better than anybody in the world. And they're acting like, um, you know, like what I forget the lady's name that said it, that the earth was going to end in what, 12 years or something, which I said it back. Oh, uh, AOC said it. Anybody that believes that and says it, I got a thousand dollars. I'll bet anybody. That, you know, we're not going to uh, be gone in 12 years because of uh, some type of climate issue. That was just so ignorant to hear that. And you know what was really good to see? Here's a good side of, uh, of, of that uh, story. Um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, 
vowed to oppose what he called the Biden administration's bid to destroy jobs with its volley of actions targeting the oil and gas industry. So uh, Governor Abbott in Texas signed an executive order which directed all state agencies to sue the Biden administration for any federal actions that threaten the energy sector in the state of Texas. He said Texas is going to protect the oil and gas industry from any type of hostile attack launched from Washington, D.C. Um, he said that Biden's embrace of the Green New Deal is a job killer in Texas. It also takes a wrecking ball to the energy independence that Texas has been able to provide to the United States of America. Um, and then he said, you know, it goes on to... Uh, Climate czar or whatever he is, John Kerry, uh, you know, said that Biden wants to make sure workers in the energy industry have better choices and jobs that pay better and are cleaner. That's not going to happen. I mean, you look at the energy industry, according to the Association of um, uh, Petroleum Institute, their jobs pay almost twice as much as uh, normal jobs or average pay jobs. So that's a bunch of baloney. We heard that last time with the uh, uh, Obama administration. All this money was given out, and it was failed. Uh, You know, they couldn't get anything done with it hardly. Uh, A lot of bailouts, a lot of sketchy stuff going on with where that money was going. So this, again, is all about money and politics. They just changed the names um, and call it different things. So uh, brand new complimentary takeaway for you the value of an objective opinion go to murrayfinancialgroup.com it's right on the home page you click the button and it's an immediate download uh to your email again it's the value of an objective opinion murrayfinancialgroup.com back in a minute Authentic free talk. Except no substitute. 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And, of course, as a podcast on iTunes and um, was mentioning uh, right before the break some economic data. Um, and uh, coming up in just a couple of minutes, uh, Dr. Lindsay Burke talking about education. She uh, has a Ph.D., uh, in that area of education policy, actually. So looking forward to that. What's going on in the classrooms and the impact it's having short, intermediate, and potentially long-term, what that all means. So we'll be talking with her in just a couple minutes. We saw the uh, ISM, the uh, uh, Institute for Supply Management, uh, come out with uh, the ISM Manufacturing and the ISM Services Report. Um, you saw that Things slowed down a little bit in January when it came to manufacturing. 
Um, some of that was because of virus infections causing labor shortages in factories and their suppliers. And they think that's going to continue to restrict the manufacturing economy expansion until the uh, virus uh, abates. So that's something that's being watched very closely. The ISM services report, that was pretty good. That came in um, at a reading of 59.9. So that's the eighth straight month of uh, positive uh numbers and readings from that sector that's important because we are um, a service-based uh, economy now in the united states that's you know the bulk of things um so it was good to see some some strength there then we, everybody was getting geared up for the uh the jobs report that came out uh and uh, on friday and first we saw the adp report which is uh it's, it's a private um Report, and they said that U.S. private employers resumed hiring in uh, January. Their report showed companies added 174,000 jobs last month, and uh, that really got the market uh, hyped up, thinking that uh, things were going to be better in um, January than what originally was expected. Interesting, medium businesses with 50 to 499 employees created the most jobs. They had 84,000 jobs that were created. Small business was second with 51,000. And then large businesses uh, came in um, with 39,000. So interesting breakdown there. Then we saw the initial jobless claims. Um, and unfortunately, 779,000 Americans filed for first-time jobless claims last week. Uh, you know, this is just a number that makes you sick when you see how many people are going and standing in line for uh, unemployment because uh, the economy is shut down and uh, politicians refuse to, to let it uh, open back up. Um, businesses know what to do uh, and how to uh, make the environment as safe as possible. And people have common sense. They know what to do as well. It's like saying every year we're going to shut down the economy and uh, the whole country because it's flu season um, or anything else. So um, it's really sad to see that. Um, unfortunately, the big jobs report showed that for the month of January, the Labor Department said only 49,000 jobs were added. So um, that's anemic. Um, you, you hate to see that. And, um, you know, you've got things that have just been wrecked so badly that you hope and pray the only place to go is up. And I mean up in a big, big way, and not because of government. You know, we don't need the whole stimulus thing, which, by the way, um, our debt is uh, 100% of our GDP now because of all this additional debt. Now they're talking about more. So what that means is of all that our economy creates on an annual basis, it's now equal to to the debt we're carrying. It's at 100%. That's not good. It's you know not good at all. Uh, we're lucky short term because interest rates are so low. But I'll tell you what, when interest rates do start to uh, uh, creep up, and our uh, our cost of debt goes up with it, those payments because of higher interest rates, it's going to be so ugly. But nobody wants to talk about that. Um, so near term, I think we're okay. 
but you look down the road and it's not a good picture at all. So you don't want just this government stimulus and the quantitative easing that we see from the Fed. We've already been there and done that. I didn't get the T-shirt because I didn't want it. It was after the uh, recession in 2008 and 2009. They dropped interest rates. They did quantitative easing. One, two, three, operation twist. They started doing all these things to manipulate the markets. Well, now they're doing it again. And that's not the way, that's not a healthy environment. It's a terrible environment. You want what we had the last few years before the virus came, where again, you had record low, um, unemployment. It was just fabulous for blacks and Latinos and Asians and ladies. Um, it didn't matter if you were a high school dropout or if you had a PhD, like my guest coming up has. It, everybody was working more. And they were making more, and the economy was humming along and growing. You know, the the Obama administration coming out of that last recession was the weakest economic recovery in the history of the country after a uh, recession because they just, instead of having good policy, they just wanted to try to control things through the government, and that doesn't work. So, um, again, it's one of those things that you look at and really scratch your head and and um, and wonder what these decisions are all about that are being made. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, again, the uh, brand new complimentary uh, download for you, The Value of an Objective Opinion. Go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. It's right there on the home page. So you can click that and uh, get it right to your email. Uh, read it on your uh, device or you, know, you can print it off and highlight it and make notes and uh, use it. However's best for you. That's why uh, we put them on there. And then when we come back, we will be talking uh, with someone um, that uh, does have a Ph.D., as I mentioned, uh, Dr. Lindsay Burke. Uh, she holds that in the education uh, policy arena. Um, and uh, she did a really good piece this week. She was actually a co-author, I believe. Uh, Virtual learning is unnecessary and no substitute for classroom instruction. How does that tie into your financial editor? Well, all these kids from kindergarten to college aren't getting the education they need. Um, and how is that going to potentially hurt them down the road, which, in fact, would hurt our economy um, overall in America? So we'll be talking about that. On the label, four glass on the living room table, fall face down, church up loud, just trying to drown you out tonight. But first, if I can feel you on my shoulder. It's your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and also available as a podcast at iTunes. Uh, just look up your financial editor. And uh, thanks for sticking with us for the second part of the program this morning. 
if you're new to the show, welcome. Glad to have you along. Hope you're uh, enjoying it so far. And uh, if you've been with us for a while, thanks uh, for that, too. And even for those that have been with me the last 23 years when we founded the uh, program back in 1997, thank you so much for your loyalty and for participating in the ratings. Uh, really, really appreciate it. So thank you to everybody listening. I had mentioned uh, we had a really good guest this morning. Very, very important issue. Dr. Lindsay Burke, uh, she's a director for the Center of Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, she holds a bachelor's degree in political, or excuse me, in politics from Holland University and a master's of teaching degree in foreign language education from UVA. And then she earned her PhD in education policy from George Mason University. Um, and Really caught my attention this week, and that's what prompted the invitation for her to come on. Uh, she and an associate, Kevin Pham, who's been on the program before, uh, did a real nice piece for the uh, um, Sun Sentinel down in uh, Florida, and it's on education, what these kids are going through, and I just thought it was really important to speak with an expert uh, so that we can try to get our, our arms around what is really going on and the impact, potentially, that we're going to see. Good morning, Lindsay. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. I truly appreciate it. Um, and, again, congratulations on the piece. It's very good, uh, very well written, uh, easy to understand, excellent points. Um, I guess we'll just start with... Um, how you feel about the last almost 12 months now, um, what's going on with the, the kids out there, and, 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 and how are they handling things, you think? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's been 12 months now. We are almost a year into students being out of school. There are kids across the country who have not set foot in a classroom at all for in-person instruction for nearly a year, which is not only taking a toil on their academic uh, outcomes, but also on their mental health. We know, sadly, that uh, depression is up, that if you look at uh, states like Nevada, in the Nevada school district there, one of their largest school districts, they sadly report increases in suicides, and that was one of the catalysts for that district working to reopen as quickly as possible. So this is taking a toll on students mental and emotional well-being. We know that kids need to be around their friends, around their teachers, their social animals. And at the same time, we know that it is safe to reopen schools, that there is no reason for children to be kept out of the classroom. We know this from uh, reports from the Centers for Disease Control, among others. They found that K-12 schooling, that doing in-person classroom instruction has rarely been a source of outbreak, and so it just really reaffirms that in-person instruction is one of the safest activities for students and that schools need to be reopened as soon as possible. And that all makes perfect sense, and you summed it up very well, and that just begs the question, why are they not open? Well, it's unfortunately a lot of special interest group pressure to keep these schools closed. The teachers unions in a lot of states and a lot of local unions are fighting to keep the doors closed. And they keep shifting the goalposts about when these unions would really bless school reopening. First, they said, well, you know, we'll wait until we know it's safe to reopen schools. Well, we know that now from the CDC and many other uh, reports. And then it was, well, we'll reopen schools when teachers 
get vaccinated. And so in a lot of instances, teachers have been prioritized, moved up in priority on the vaccine uh, schedule list in a lot of areas. But now they're starting to shift the goalposts even further. I'm sitting here in northern Virginia in Fairfax, and the Fairfax Education Association has said, well, now we want to wait until children are vaccinated. There is not even an approved vaccine yet for children. So that's basically a call to keep schools closed indefinitely. So, again, they're, they're shifting the goalposts uh, and effectively saying that they want schools to remain in hybrid mode to an indefinite time period, which is unacceptable for so many students and families across the country. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, I, I just I I don't understand it. I, I was all on board for the two week. We're going to, you know, tamp down the curve and all that. And, and I, I did, you know, exactly what I was uh, asked to do. But after that, I've just kind of seen through this as it's ridiculous. It's control. It's uh, overreach. And I don't understand why a teacher or their unions or anybody else um, would put their interest ahead of a child's. Now, granted, if you have a comorbidity or your husband or wife does at home and you're older, I get it. But why wouldn't you be able to get a doctor's note saying, hey, I have a legitimate reason for me not to go to school but everybody else, you know, can get back to school. And like you said, the kids can be with their friends and out of danger quite often uh, from the other statistics I see about sexual and physical abuse uh, above and you know beyond that terrible uh, thing you mentioned with suicide that just breaks our heart when we bring it up. Um, so why, why, why do you think they do that? What's the logic there? What's their end game? Yeah, you're absolutely right. They are, the units are ignoring the science completely on this. And so the question is, why? If we look around the country, we see that a lot of these unions are pushing for things that are entirely political in nature and not related to the question of the safety of school reopening. So we can look at Los Angeles, for example, the Los Angeles Unified School District, the union there said that they would not bless school reopening until there was Medicaid for all and until the police were defunded. <laughs> Things that had absolutely nothing to do uh, with the question of the safety of in-person instruction. And so we see a lot of politics tied up with this. But I also think at the heart of it, it's a matter of incentive. District schools will continue to get paid. They will continue to receive your taxpayer dollars, regardless of whether or not they open to in-person instruction. It's just the way that public education is structured. However, if we look at the private school sector, private schools are not going to receive your tuition dollars unless they are responsive to parents. And what parents want right now are for schools to reopen to in-person instruction, to have that choice to send their child to in-person learning. And so private schools are open. If you look across the country, 60% of students who attend private schools are receiving in-person instruction versus just 24% of public school district students. That's an incredibly stark contrast. And, again, I think it all comes down to that, that issue of incentives. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. And, um, and, again, I saw earlier this week that enrollment in the Catholic and Christian schools in particular was really up, you know, because a lot of parents were saying, well, yeah, I do have to, you know, pay my my taxes, and I know that's going to public education, but I don't care. I'm going to sacrifice and also 
pay a private tuition so that, you know, our children are taken care of and, and actually stay on the learning track? Yeah, they're, they're paying twice. They're willing now to do that. Uh, many parents make great sacrifices to be able to pay twice, once for those property taxes that you mentioned, and then a second time in private school tuition. But there are many families across the country who cannot do that, cannot afford to pay double for their child's education. And that's why it's so critical that we rethink what we mean by public education, that we reconceptualize the very definition of what public education means. It should mean that it is publicly financed, but that we are agnostic about the type of school that that takes place in. It could take place in a public school or a charter school or a private school or homeschooling. Dollars should be student-centered and portable. We should fund children rather than physical school buildings and let those, and let those dollars follow them to whatever learning option works the best for them. And we're seeing that happen more and more now. And sort of ironically, right, the unions are doing more to advance the cause of school choice uh, than we've seen in a long time because enrollment is up at private schools. And we're seeing enrollment decline significantly in public school districts that are closed across the country. So we'll see if that lasts long term. But states are starting to respond. A lot of states this year already, the legislative sessions have just kicked off. It's only, you know, early February. But dozens of states are already thinking about education savings account options, other school choice options to fund children directly so that they can maintain this educational continuity that they need. Yeah, absolutely. You're exactly right. I mean, that just sounds like it makes so much sense. And I think that's why people are so frustrated, because that's not the way things are uh, are being handled right now. So um, maybe this will. They'll cut their nose off to spite their face. Who knows how that's going to all work out. We're going to squeeze a quick break in here. And when we come back, we'll be uh, uh, closing our uh, conversation with Dr. Lindsey Burke, uh, Director for the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, and just get her take on, you know, where she thinks uh, we go from here as far as the intermediate and long-term impact on uh, so many of these children. How are they going to be uh, stunted from this, and what type of impact is it going to have on our country going forward? So stay tuned. For me. Pour me another drink Cause I don't want to feel a thing No more hell not Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And, of course, as a podcast, you can just go to iTunes and search your financial editor. And uh, we're going to wrap up our conversation with uh, my guest this morning, Dr. Lindsay Burke. Uh, she uh, holds a bachelor's degree in politics from Holland University, a master's of teaching degree in foreign language education from the University of Virginia, and she earned her Ph.D. in education policy from George Mason University. Quite a few accolades. She's won various uh, awards back in 2013, 2015. Uh, it had a lot to do with what we were talking about before the break as far as expanded education choice options and uh, doing what's best for children. 
children. And um, I, I guess, Lindsay, again, what do you think uh, the intermediate and long-term impact might be on these children that uh, are so disrupted right now from what their, um, you know, their schedules have been? Well, we're already seeing some of that impact in the data that uh, there has been significant learning loss anywhere between one and three months for students who have not had access to in-person instruction uh, over the past year now. And those declines appear to be more pronounced among uh, low-income children in particular, which makes sense. These are often the children who have the fewest options, the fewest ability to select into a school to pay twice, as we were discussing earlier, uh, to pay that private school tuition. And so, you know, if we think about the way public education is currently structured, where your family can afford to live right now is dictating whether or not a child has access to in-person learning. And that should be unacceptable to everyone, uh, that depending on what district or even in some cases what side of the road based on an attendance boundary that you live in determines whether or not you can access in-person instruction uh, really shows how inefficient and uh, our current education system has become and how much power these unions continue to maintain. And so, you know, that's, I think, the, the downside of all of this is obviously the learning loss. It's obviously the impact that this is having on children's mental health and overall well-being. But I would argue there is a bit of a silver lining that parents now, those families who can do so, are really looking at alternatives, right? They're, they're recognizing that the traditional district system is not the only answer, and they're deciding where and how their children are learned, and they're finding new and creative ways, right, new learning opportunities like learning pods, pandemic pods that parents are forming. And so I think from a public policy perspective, what is so critical right now is that we make public education dollars much more nimble, we free them up, we fund students directly so that kids from all walks of life, including students from lower-income families, have those same opportunities to select into schools that are open to in-person learning and are the right fit for them. Yeah, I, uh, again, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, I, I mean, I know some families that uh, the mom has decided to homeschool um, and um, it's not easy. I mean, it's hard on everybody all of a sudden to say, OK, I'm going to become a teacher. And what curriculum do I uh, get? Who's got the right kind? Which, by the way, I'll switch gears for our last couple minutes of our discussion. Um, how do you feel about the new curriculum that's being rolled out? Um, you know, we hear about 1619 and then the cancellation right. of the 1776 commission uh, a couple years ago, about a year and a half ago. I had Wilford McClay on. I don't know if yeah. you know him, right? So, I mean, unbelievable, his book, Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. But, you know, so many kids, they're not going to hear that. That's right. And uh, incidentally, Land of Hope is sitting on my desk right now as we speak. <laughs> it's a, a wonderful textbook. Uh, that students should have more access to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you really uh, nailed it there. The 1619 Project is ahistorical. Many historians have critiqued it as such. It really paints a dim view of America, not an aspirational view. Uh, I, I think that students should be hearing in their district schools. Uh, one really, really critical policy reform to address this is transparency around what kids are learning in school. And look, I would actually say that this is another beneficial um, downstream effect of schools being closed 
and virtual learning being the norm right now, as unfortunate as that might be for a lot of families, parents are getting an up-close examination of what public schools are teaching their kids. And so that has provided a little more insight into the content that's being taught in public schools across the country. 4,500 classrooms across the country have adopted the 1619 project. And so parents now really do have the opportunity to see that up close and personal. That's something that they have not always had the opportunity to do. If you uh, try to access the textbooks that school districts are using, their curriculum, as a parent, you can often come up upon some barriers to doing that. Every single parent, every single taxpayer should be able to immediately know what public schools are teaching their children. And so states should require districts to be transparent about that content to put it online and to make it immediately available for families. And that's something families should engage with their school boards about as well. Go to those school board meetings and talk to your school board members about the textbooks that are being adopted and about the curriculum that's being implemented in schools. Yeah, and for parents and grandparents, I mean, that that you, you really need to embrace that because it's some really – cruddy stuff i know firsthand um our youngest daughter is in her first year of college and she shares with me different things and you know and then like what the only resources you're allowed to use on her one project was the washington post and the new york times i mean it is insane what these uh professors and teachers are getting away with so if you're not having conversations with your children and talking truth, um, they're in a very dangerous and vulnerable place. So as we always do here on the program, you know, make sure you know what's going on with your children and grandchildren and they know the truth. Um, and everybody, make sure you go to heritage.org. And uh, uh, Dr. Lindsey Burke has uh, been our guest today. Her last name is B-U-R-K-E. Just search that. And all of Lindsey's writings uh, will appear on the uh, heritage.org uh, site, and uh, including the last one that I saw this week that she did with Kevin Pham, virtual learning is unnecessary and no substitute for classroom instruction. Um, and you can read all the other stuff that she's researched and proofed and, um, and, and be more knowledgeable about what's going on, right? We don't want to be a mushroom. We don't want to be fed you-know-what and kept in the dark. We need to uh, know what's really going on. So, uh, Lindsay, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to be with us. It was very, very educational and insightful for all of our listeners, and that's what they appreciate, too. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and uh, that'll do it for us. We'll um, we'll have to uh, pick this up another time, hopefully have Lindsay back on and um, and get an update as to uh, what kind of progress we're making. Hopefully it's going to be good stuff. And uh, I will talk to you on the Morning News Express with uh, Bob Miller and Ryan Hedrick. We do that at 550, 650, live uh, every weekday morning. And then we'll be back here next uh, Saturday for another program for you. And, uh, again, you can go get our brand-new um, complimentary download, uh, The Value of an Objective Opinion. Go to murrayfinancialgroup.com talks about the importance of timing, the importance of income planning, the benefits of independence, etc. So uh, the um, value of an objective opinion is your complimentary download uh, at murrayfinancialgroup.com. And um, that does it. So I will talk to you on the Morning News Express and then be back here next Saturday. And I hope you have a great and safe weekend. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. 
south Somewhere where the summer lasted all year round Probably got a big old diamond on your hand right now Maybe a baby or a couple by now Long driveway to a big white house editions of this program are available in the audio vault at WFMD.com. News Radio 930. WFMD Frederick. A connoisseur media radio station. 7 o'clock. 